Hi, it's Josephine Lane-Cuby here, your performing arts business strategist, speaker and coach. Today is an important interview because we are talking about mental wellness in the dance and performance industry space. And today I'm joined by the creators of Dance End, both Kristen Deese and Michelle Lukadu. Dance End's mission is to bring mental wellness to the forefront of dance training by providing a space for education, application and community to dancers, educators and professionals alike. Now, both Michelle and Kristen have shared over 60 years plus in the dance industry. They've both worked extensively as professional dancers and are well-versed and experienced in the realm of dance education. And we explore that in today's interview. We really talk about that and they tell us, um, you know, how their experiences have led them to this mental wellness space in the dance industry. Now, these ladies have been working together in the education field for seven years. And the idea of Dance End was born because of an overwhelming need that they observed in their students. So no stranger to the need for mental health awareness, both creators wrestled with various issues in their professional dance careers as well. Now, in this episode, they're actually quite candid about that. And they talk about some of the you know, both the positive and negative impacts of the dance industry has had um, within their own lives and some of the things that happened in their own personal experiences, which I hope really translates to you guys and, and something that you can really resonate and connect with as well. Because we've all been there, right? We've all been there as performing artists. Now, in Dance End, Kristen and Michelle have created resources that they wish were available when they were beginning their dance careers. We talk about those resources in the show. So without further ado, all the way from Los Angeles in the USA, I would love for you to meet Michelle and Kristen. Let's do this. Hey there, I'm Josephine Lancuba and you're listening to Business Arts and All That Jazz. I've been immersed in the creative business world and performing arts industry for over 20 years. I know from experience that being an artist, a creative or running a creative business can be a tough gig, but I'm here to tell you it's possible. I went from having zero dollars to my name and living below the poverty line to then living paycheck to paycheck to finally living a life of comfort, happiness, passion and even stability. In this podcast, I peel back the curtain and share with you the ups and downs of my journey. Plus, I tap into the minds of creative industry experts to discover their paths to success. I know you have a spark inside of you, that little voice that tells you to reach for the stars. I want to help you step into your limelight to have the courage to live a life you dream of, a life that you design. So get ready to be entertained and inspired as we talk business, arts, and all that jazz. Hello and welcome, ladies, to the show. I'm so excited to have you both here. Thank you for having us. We're excited (laughs) to be here. I know. And all the way from LA, what time is it there at the moment? Six o'clock. Oh, five p.m. 6.05 6.05 p.m. Oh, that's not too bad. That's pretty good. It's 1 p.m. Yeah, yeah. here in Sydney, Australia. So, you know, oh. that's not too bad. Um, look, you know, I just wanted to say, um, again, thank you for being on the show. I've met you guys in an industry Facebook group. <laughs> 
as you do these days. It's the love-hate relationship with social media, I suppose. But it was great because you guys were talking about, you know, mental wellness and dances and all that stuff. And I was just really attracted to that post, which is why we're here today. So it's amazing that we've connected in that way. Um, the first thing I think everyone may like to know is how you ladies got started in, in the dance industry, like generally and and what you do within it now. So maybe Michelle, if you'd like to kick it off. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I started out as a super bun head. So I started dancing when I was three and then um, went to American Ballet Theater School when I was 14 um, in New York and um, was super, super nerdy about ballet. And I danced for four ballet companies um, after graduating from high school. Um, and then I was actually let go from one of the ballet companies because they uh, said my body type was too large for their next season. Um, and then I found my way to musical theater and fell in love with it. Um, I did uh, five shows on Broadway, eight shows a week for the next almost 10 years, and then came out to LA, um, did some film and television and commercial dance out here. Um, and that's how I met Kristen. Um, we both were working at Hessian College in LA. And um, the whole time I had been an educator, um, love being in the classroom and watching those little light bulb moments for, for dancers. Um, and now, um, so I left my uh, position at Hessian College about uh, two years ago, almost now. Um, and now I'm on, I'm teaching on a dance convention. I'm teaching ballet, musical theater, and contemporary on fluid dance convention. Um, and I'm nice. adjunct faculty at AMDA out here in LA. Okay, amazing. So, the background. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Sounds very busy. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. And uh, Kristen, what about you? Yeah, so like Michelle, I was I started as a total ballet um, person. I thought that other forms of dance were just ludicrous and weren't really dance. <laughs> so narrow-minded. And um, I trained at the Rock School, the Pennsylvania Ballet, Miami City Ballet School, School of American Ballet. And that was my path until I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. And it really took a toll on my body. And I, you know, it was injury after injury after injury. And by the time I was 17, and most of us were accepting company contracts, I was just like, I don't even know if I can do this for a year, let alone like the next 10, 15, 20 years of my life. Like it just hurt too much. So I decided to stop dancing totally because to me, there was only one definition of success. And I thought I wasn't going to meet that. Then I didn't want anything to do with it. And I went on to, you know, other areas of my life. I got my bachelor's in history. I was in a PhD program for history. And the whole time I started to become more aware of the bigger dance world outside of ballet. And I really fell in love with it and felt like there's so much for me to learn. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to provide a space for the next generation of dancers that I don't feel like I really got. And I wanted them to know about the whole world of dance. I wanted them to be mentally okay with they were facing injury and things like that. And so I went and got my MFA um, in dance from Tisch because I wanted to teach in higher education. And I moved out to LA. And then that's how I met Michelle. We were both at Hushin College and I'm still there. And then we started Dance End. Yeah, I love that story. And you mentioned that you guys met in college, but what really drew you guys together? Like, what was it that's where you just knew you guys connected in a way that was aligned, I suppose? Well, I think when we met, 
Michelle was actually my boss at the time. She was the chair of the dance department and I was the adjunct faculty. And I think that it was very clear from the get-go that we both had similar teaching philosophies where we were both committed to sort of taking the good from what we were given as young dancers and discarding the stuff that didn't work. And I know a lot of educators unconsciously just recycle what they were taught. You teach the way that you were taught, right? Um, but I feel like the both of us really made a concerted effort and a conscious effort to not do that and to think about what worked and what didn't and what could help our students. And so I think for me, at least, that's sort of why we, we connected in that way. Yeah, and a lot definitely has changed, um, you know, in the performing arts industry as a whole and the dance industry. And you mentioned, Michelle, even just those comments around, you know, body image and, um, you know, basically being told you're too fat to dance, you know, which is so ridiculous. I mean, are we still seeing these sorts of things now, do you think, in the industry or, or is it getting better? How have things changed in your mind? I, so I, I do believe it's getting better. Um, I think um, it still exists, definitely. I mean, there are still some, you know, some programs that have weigh-ins on a weekly basis. There are, you know, um, there's there's this objectification of this one type of body that not everyone has. And sound, but I do believe that actually social media in this aspect is a positive because we can see even if you know people are in an environment where they are not in a supportive body positive environment they can go on Instagram and see dancers like Amanda LeCount who are slaying it who are fuller figured dancers or dancers of different colors dancers of different ages um, so I think in, in that way, social media is helping the, the dance industry be more inclusive of all types of people, yeah. just humans moving their bodies because yeah, all dancers are dancing bodies. I mean, I actually did an episode yeah. on this about body imagery and in, in the in the arts and all that sort of thing. And I talk about some of the experiences I had. And even then, I mean, I was told in full-time college by the principal um, that I had more roles than a bakery. That's what she said. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. I when I look back, actually, it's quite funny. When you look back at yourself as your young self, you go, that was amazing. Like, looked the best I've ever looked yeah. in my life. <laughs> you know, excuse me while I pick my jaw up off the floor because that is the most terrible That's thing. Terrible. Yeah, more roles than oh bakery. And it was said actually in front of the entire group, too. So yeah. But anyway, I digress. These are the sorts of things. I mean, I don't think I don't think you get away with it these days. And I think that young dancers are probably a bit more educated now to actually come back and say, well, that's actually not okay that you said that you know um but anyway yeah look you know but but um, actually that is but actually that is like so that's kind of how Kristen and I um we got together and created dance in because we started sharing all of these kind of um traumas for for lack of a better word um and then I was like oh my gosh that happened to me and then Kristen's like oh my gosh that happened to me that happened to you oh my gosh I know so many people and we started talking to dancers and educators from around the world and we have all had very similar experiences so that shared 
um, recognition of the hole that we have in the mental wellness in our dance industry is, is why we started dancing. So yeah. I feel you and you're not yeah. alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know, we've got a lot of studio owners and creatives that listen to this podcast. So these, these are people that are either doing it themselves as the artist or they're mentoring you know, emerging artists, young artists and that, all that sort of thing. So the topic of mental wellness in the dance industry um, and the performing arts industry as a whole really is a very important one. Um, you, I, you mentioned some of your experiences there, Michelle. Uh, Kristen, did you have any sort of experiences that led you to focusing on this area of, you know, wellness? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I was just, so eager to please my, my teachers who I looked up to so much who I idolized beyond probably what was healthy for me and them <laughs> um, but nobody really told me not to I, I it was never you know I didn't see them as human and they didn't try to present themselves as human they tried you know and I and I think to nobody's fault this is just sort of the way the culture was. They, the dance teacher comes in and they're holier than thou. They are God or goddess in that moment. And they wield everything over you. And because of that, I think, I mean, every time I was in class rehearsal in an audition, I just catered to what I thought they wanted. And I totally forgot about me. And I didn't even think to discover who I was, or I didn't think to, you know, find value and worth in myself aside from what I could bring. And once that stopped happening, right, once I started to really face some serious injuries, I had no more worth. I had no more value, which is what I thought. And that's when I decided like, oh, I can't do this anymore, I guess. And no one really told me otherwise. No one, no one like walked me through and was like, there's a whole other world out there. Like we had, there was one definition of success. And if you don't meet that, then you failed. And so that, um, that sort of over-identification with my value and my, my worth as only what I could bring to the studio as a perfect dancer has, has really stayed with me ever since. And I, I really try my hardest to not have that environment be in my studios when I teach, because you, number one, you don't get great work out of an artist when all they see as is themselves as that art form, because where is their lived experience? Like, where is their emotion? Where is their storytelling? Right. It doesn't come. Your storytelling doesn't come from hours and hours spent at the bar. Your storytelling comes from living a life. And from recognizing that all of us are humans, but also number two, like everybody is so much more than just a dancer. And it's like, if you want, if you want somebody to feel safe and to feel seen and to learn and to perform at their best, you have to see them as such. You have to recognize their entire humanity. Yeah. When you talk about what um, you, you defined success as back then versus now, like what, what was success? And how does that look different to you now? Oh, for me, it was it was 100% no can ask principal dancer in New York City Ballet. Mm. That was it. Yeah. Okay. That was it. Not, not, not any other company. In the industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's why, you know, I went to 
Balanchine-based schools. And even when I was at like the Rock School, which is attached to Pennsylvania Ballet, and when I was at Miami City Ballet, which is attached to Miami City, like I, I wanted to be in New York City Ballet because that's what Balanchine started. And it was like, I couldn't see anything other than that. And honestly, I think I was praised by a lot of my educators because at a young age, I showed a lot of promise and I showed a lot of like, I already knew exactly what I wanted. And it's not bad to have a goal, but it's good to not hold on to it so tightly because, yeah. you know, life does this. Yeah. It's and that's hard where the stress comes you when you go in a straight line. Yeah, that's where the stress comes in. Um, right. And again, I, I came across you ladies in an online industry Facebook group and you were sharing an ebook that you created called How to Help Dancers Cope with Stress. So you mentioned in that ebook that three out of four dancers experience stress. So what exactly does stress look like within a performance space and, and why do you think that is? That's the that is one of the challenges with stress is that it uh it can manifest in very different ways with very different people. Um, you know, one of the most obvious is that the dancer that gets ready to go on stage and has the stage fright and freezes and then forgets the choreography and then runs off crying, right? Like that's what we think about. But 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 stress can can manifest itself in, you know. Um, in perfectionism tendencies, it can it can be dancers that that can't stop thinking about things. It can be it can be also dancers that pull away from trying so hard because they are so stressed that they're going to mess up that they don't want to put it like. So it's it's all it's very different in um, different people, but like stress itself is is your body's response to a perceived threat, right? So it's something that you see that could harm you in some way, um, which was very helpful, you know, back when we would perceive a berry to be poisonous and not eat it and then stay alive, or, you know, we would find the woolly mammoth and the bushes getting ready to eat us, that's helpful. But but when we now have the exact same response that's supposed to keep us alive in, in you know, response to maybe even, okay, everybody put on your tap shoes, you know, that, that stress response um, can kind of build on itself and create an unhealthy environment in your life, right? Yes, you absolutely. Know? What um, about like, you, you talk about stress coping strategies, what about that? Like, how are some of the ways that, you know, there's all these different types of dancer stress, right? So how do we approach that? I think there's one of the best, sorry. You go. It's hard when there's two of <laughs> us. so exciting. Oh, look, Zoom delays, yada, yada. We're doing um, well, ladies, don't worry. Kristen, yeah, go for it. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the first things, one of the first most beneficial things to do is to recognize what stress looks like for you and what stresses you out, right? Because people can throw um, coping mechanisms at you like, oh, do this or try that or try this. But like Michelle said, stress manifests itself in so many different ways for so many different people that if you really want to pinpoint what's going to work best for you, first step is to figure out what do I feel when I'm stressed out? And, and my, do I feel anxious? Do I feel tired? Do I feel disengaged? Do I feel overwhelmed? 
And then what exactly in my life, where did those stressors come from? Because then you can kind of approach it in this two-prong approach. Like you're ready for the stressor when it comes because you know, okay, I know that this is going to stress me out. And you also sort of know what your sort of go-to stress response is so you can look for ways to counteract that. But many of us are living in such chronic stress situations that we're just stressed out all day long about everything. And we have no idea that our hormones are going crazy off the charts. And that actually can lead to some serious physical and mental um, issues like anxiety, depression, um, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, like all of these things. I would say most people, I think there was a poll like 82% of all Americans a couple years ago said that they were experiencing um, bodily issues related to stress on a regular basis. Yeah, That's a lot of people that are stressed. And I know myself, I mean, I look at myself. I'm I was sorry? just going to say, as a studio owner, so you're talking about from the dancer's perspective or the performer's perspective, but what about as a studio owner, if you're dealing, let's say, with young people that may not have that self-awareness? I mean, how do we reduce our student stress or is this something that we really can't intervene with or or how do we, or can we support them? Like what about identifying that as a teacher or a studio owner? Yeah, I think the first thing to to do is to just recognize it and recognize that it's okay and that it might happen, right? Because I definitely have gotten stressed out, but then gotten stressed out about the fact that I was stressed out, right? So 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 young dancers may have these feelings and may have, you know, these reactions and they don't know what it is. Um often giving a name to something is very helpful um in even like reducing some of that stress. Um, another great thing to do is uh, if you have young dancers getting ready to go into a performance setting or a competition setting, um, preparing them for what they're going to expect and then having them walk through what they'll do, right? So um, if you're going to a theater, you know, what are you going to do if you fall down on stage? Um, then have them talk through it, maybe even have them walk through it because one of the... Um, one of the the biggest kind of causes um, that can spike a, a stress response is that surprise, right? That kind of like that immediate, like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Um, so the more you can prepare dancers for things that might happen that are wrong, or even, you know, hey, guess what? There's going to be a lot of people in the audience. Like, do you think you, how do you think you're going to feel? Like, what are you going to do if you feel this way? Right. Um, and then there are tons of, you know, breathing exercises too, that you can do that you can walk dancers through in the moment. Um, but one of the best things too, is just prepare them for it and tell them that it's okay. And even, you know, I share sometimes when I'm stressed out, you know, and my students kind of look at me and they're like, wait a minute, you're stressed. I'm like, yeah, I'm human. You're human too. We can share when we are, you know, experiencing a challenge. That's okay. So, yeah, I, I like yeah. that. I mean, I do that actually with my students and um, I tend to say, oh, because I, I run a musical theatre school and program. So we have script and dialogue and it's not just movement-based and vocal and all of that included, which I'm sure you totally get. But um, 
I guess, you know, we talk about, okay, so what happens if you forget a line, everyone? What do we do? What happens in that moment? Or what happens if um, we forget a move? What do we do? And so we actually do have those conversations. And I think that does prepare them. I tend to also prepare them for audience numbers. So like they're, mm-hmm. you know, oh, okay, so there's going to be about 500 people in the audience. And at first I'm like, oh, what? But I feel like that's better than them just stepping out onto stage and then going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes. I wasn't, I, I didn't know it was going to be this big, you know. So, I mean, you can never truly fully prepare someone until they live the moment, but at least having those conversations and letting them know that that's okay um, is totally important for young people. I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, what is a common challenge you see in dancers and within the dance industry as a whole at the moment? Like we've just come off the back of COVID. I would say that I I reckon I'm seeing like so many um so many kids that are really elevated they're quite anxious um which and we weren't seeing this as much before there's always been kids with anxiety in the group or all these sorts of issues but post-covid I do think that that has increased in the classroom I mean what are you guys seeing at the moment definitely an increase in anxiety hands down Mm. hands down I think that there's um a an unfortunate result of going into lockdown for such a long time and being isolated from other humans while at the same time being so affected by worldly events right it's like this weird dichotomy um in isolation it's not like you didn't know what was going on you were isolated because of what was going on I think there's a lack of coping mechanisms. Mm. Um, I think there's there's a, a little bit of a, it, this is twofold. And this gets a little bit tricky because I think at the same time you're seeing, at least I can speak about the college um, age yeah. generation that I'm seeing. There's a, a rise in anxiety but at the same time, there's also a rise in, you know, the conversation around mental health, which is really great. And the stigma is slowly going away. But I think there's a misconception about what mental health really is and how you actually achieve it. Because so many um, young kids are under the assumption that mental health means being perfect all the time, feeling great all the time. And if I don't feel great or perfect, then I need to pull back and isolate myself until I can get over it. And then I can enter for the world again. And when you isolate yourself like that, it's actually tends to make problems worse. Um, so I think it's this weird thing that's happening. And I think slowly they'll sort of come together. And the more that we uncover this, this mental health stigma, the more people will understand that it's a practice like anything else, right? Like you don't, if you're hungry one day, you don't say, well, I'm going to stop eating or I'm going to eat all day for the next five hours because I'm hungry. Like there, it's, we're just not as familiar with mental health um, practices as we should be, but we're getting there. Yeah. I think also um, at the same time, because we were largely uh, isolated 
Um, we depended on our phones, our televisions to give us this information. And, and many of us got stuck in this 24-7 news cycle, this 24-7 social media cycle that I know I watched CNN, like, <laughs> I mean, all day long, every day. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously that, that, that itself is a is a stressor because their job is to report a perceived uh, or report a threat and then you know so you're just continually getting all of these threats that are spiking and spiking the stress levels so um i think that we have become very used to a 24-hour news slash social media cycle and i think one of the things that our young people now are seeing is is you know the comparisons that happen with social media and feeling bad if you're not perfect because there are all of these, you know, apps to fix your face and make yourself thinner mm, and like make your I booty know. bigger and all of those things. Um, so it's, so you know, much. complicated. Those apps, especially for little people, um, they shouldn't be on it anyway. They have an age guide, but they still create these kids apps. Um, well, what is it? I'm not talking about Instagram per se, but even like Snapchat and all that sort of stuff. But for kids, and um, mm -hmm. my daughter's only like, she's nearly eight and she was asking to go on it because she's got friends on it. And I'm like, no, you're not going on Snapchat. You're not even eight yet. Like, she's like, oh no, it's just for kids. And you can, all you do is you like, you do like pictures on your face and you send it to your friends. And I'm like, no, because that means you're changing the way you look. And I don't want you to see yourself differently to who you are. You're only little. Like, I just feel like that's the beginning. And it's starting so much younger now, even though it's innocent. I mean, they could be turning their face into a possum or something. Like, it doesn't really matter. But you get my point. Are you laughing because I selected possum just then? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fantastic. <laughs> I just imagined it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's yeah. crazy. It's like, or they, you know, beautify their face or whatever, like, so that's perfect. Or they look like a fairy, a pixie or something. And it's just too much. And it starts so young. So then they start getting into the teen years and everyone on social media is doing these splits that are part, like, you know, their legs are literally bending up onto the top of their heads like they're contortionists basically. And this is the new norm for a dancer. It's just ridiculous, you know. I think the standard has changed because when I used to dance when we were young, you know, it wasn't an acrobatics contest. And now it is, and you see a lot of that on social media. So how do we combat that? That's a really hard one. You can't you can't make kids come off social media, you know, or, or suffer that comparisonitis, I suppose. What's your thoughts around that? Well, so actually we did a, we have this group called um, Council. It's a group of educators, and we had a guest this this morning, Leslie Scott, who uh, is the co-founder of NEMA, NEMA um, uh, which is uh, advocates um, uh, in the movement arts, but she presented on over-sexualization and objectification in the dance industry. Um, and she was talking about how it does start young with us identifying with the way we look and um presenting our you know even young people like like attaching their self-worth to what they look like from the outside um and that we as educators and parents um are kind of you know 
in charge of helping them understand who they are and that they are, you know, but at the same time, we're humans and we are conditioned like the way our brains work. We want to fit in like we, you know, need to fit in to like stay with the tribe and not get kicked out of the cave and eaten by the woolly mammoth. Right. So um, so it's kind of a hard dichotomy to to be like no eight-year-old daughter, you can't be on this because I understand that that is not healthy for you. But then at the same time, trying to figure out how do you facilitate her, um, you know, connecting with her peers. It's yes. it's really difficult. Yeah, totally. You talked about breathing exercises. You talked about, you know, doing different things to help bring, you know, the, your energy level to, to a happy place, I suppose. Um, you mentioned in your ebook and exercise 54321. Do you want to just quickly talk us through that for anyone listening that can use that as a coping strategy at home? Is that me? That one, Michelle. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we're just coming off mute there, everyone. Just so you know, at home, there you go. <laughs> um, so, so the five, four, three, two, one exercise. It's a, um, it's an exercise. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy exercise for um, helping with anxiety in the moment. Right. So, so you can do the preparation ahead of time, and you can, um, you know think about what's going to happen and go through scenarios. But if you do it, like if you are experiencing a moment and this is the first time I did this was actually with my therapist. So this was not something I researched. This was something that like my therapist was like, okay, chill out. And then she started walking me through this. So basically um, if you are having um, an, a, a stress response, uh, you just slowly start to notice things. So you start with five things that you can see. Um, and then if you are walking a dancer through this or a peer through this, um, ask them to tell you one by one, um, out loud what they see. Um, like I see my coffee cup. I see my ring light. I see the blue tab on my computer, that kind of thing. Um, and then you move on to four things that you can feel. Um, I feel my shirt on my body. I feel my watch on my arm. I feel the air on my, on my skin. Then you move on to three things that you can hear. Um, I hear the airplane outside. I don't know if y'all can. Um, I hear my cat licking her paws over here and then move on to two things you can smell. And then one thing you can taste. Um, what that does is it brings you out, uh, hopefully brings you out of a stress response, um, into like, oh my gosh, I'm scared of what's going to happen. I'm scared of what's in the future or, you know, I'm worried about the future um, into the present. Um, so like, and it can, um, it helps me a lot too. So I can, I can say it helps me, um, but it's also, you know, something that's simple to do for you any age, like just noticing, you know, um, grownups and kids alike. So. Yeah, and that's a great one that teachers can use as well. Um, as a stress response in the moment um, for their students. So I liked that one. So thank you for sharing that. If you could say anything to people out there wanting to enter the dance industry, what would you say to them? That's a big one. <laughs> Get out while you uh, still can. Run. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, it's so hard to answer that. 
I, I taught, you know, people always ask me, I have a, a little boy who's three and they always ask me, what would you do if he wants to dance? Right. And I'm like, if he wants to, then I would 100% support him because that's what's important. Um, but I think the, from my experience, the, the thing I would say to those that want to enter the dance industry is let it serve you until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's okay to do something else. And it's okay that your path doesn't look like everybody else's. And it's okay that, you know, your career doesn't look like the person you idolize. I think that there's so much pressure on dance, and this is a whole other topic, on performers especially, to get it while they're young, to achieve while they're young, because, you know, you're aging and then you're you're going to be aged out, that there's so much pressure that they have to achieve right away and very quickly. And then even at their own expense, even when they feel like, I, I don't like this anymore, or I don't like where this is going, but I've put so much of myself into this. How can I turn around now? How could I pivot now? I think just staying true to like who you really are and how you feel. And if what you're doing is serving you, great, continue. And if it's not, then look for something else. I love that so much. It's so it, you've answered my next question, by the way. So oh. <laughs> I was going to say, so what about someone who's been in it forever and wants out? Like, what do you suggest to them? Yeah. But that's it. it. It serves you until it doesn't. And it's totally okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally okay. Yeah. And also not to be caught up in who we idolise, that, that that's the, the symbol of perfectionism when it's not, you know. I mean, they even have, you know, those terrible sayings. I don't know if you've got that there in the States, but when they say like, oh, um, you know, those who can't teach, do you, do you hear that? Oh, all the yeah. time. Yeah, so <laughs> really, that's not very, that's not nice. <laughs> no. I think that's true. I, yeah. I actually have people on my faculty and my team that, choose teaching first they never even want like there's people that go out and become performers and then teach that I was one of them I was out there performing and then became a teacher and then started my own company but I know plenty of people that actually choose to teach first and that's okay too you know like whatever and it's okay if you if you migrate from being the performer to the teacher I mean I actually got sick of it after a while, to be honest. I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I and I was four months pregnant when I stopped. But I don't go, oh, because I had a baby, I had to stop. I was like, I was so happy to move on. I was like, I, I guess it was my, it was an excuse, I guess. But I wanted that excuse. I was looking for a reason. And then yeah. that was it. I was like, oh, yes, I'm out. Woo! <laughs> you know but I've I've still maintained I've always been in the industry and and it's I love the industry and there's so many places like you said before actually um you know Kristen you're talking about there's so many areas you can be in like it's so tunnel vision like you have to be this or you have to be that for me it was you know commercial dance or being a pop star or you know I was in the commercial space and just in that whole industry um and so it was really different and it's just ridiculous I mean even having the age thing where people age out that you mentioned even that like why can't we have senior dance production companies like who's to say and you know I've seen them I've seen NDT 
their their older company Mm -hmm. and there is something about god i'm just gonna say this the word elderly just popped into my head and i was like (laughs) what i can't say that like this is how dance has conditioned me by the way um there's something about seeing a mature performer that you don't get looking at 20 and 30 year olds you really don't and when 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 people like come into their 40s and 50s like it's a whole new understanding of their body, of the art form, of life. They have so much more to give because they've been around for so, you know, for longer. And it really is special. And I think slowly we're starting to see more of it. I hope to see a lot more of it soon. Um, but that is a very real thing. It's a very real pressure. Like this industry celebrates youth. Totally. And hopefully that changes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What was the company you said that um, was doing that sort of work? Netherlands Dance Theatre, NDT. Okay. They have a bunch of different um, companies like that branch off of the original one and they have one just for mature dancers. Tina Bausch also um, notoriously in her company used and continues to use mature dancers. And there's just something like it's beautiful. They're wonderful to watch. Yeah. And I love that your 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 child's come onto the screen there, Michelle. That's nice. <laughs> love it. Yeah. I, I told you before we hit record, everyone at home, I said, now, if your child comes on and barges through the door and interrupts the session, I totally get it. It's okay. No, totally fine. Um, okay, so tell me, um, before we wrap, I always like to ask this question, um, and you guys can answer independently or, or whatever you prefer, but tell me who or what inspires you? That's a great question. question. Um, What inspires me? Honestly, I think the thing that really inspires me is anytime I see anyone who is passionate about anything they do. It could be someone who's passionate about candle making, someone who's passionate about uh, wood sculptures, someone who like just being in the presence or watching someone speak about their passion, I find to be so inspiring because I think that's one of the most beautiful qualities that we have as humans. And one of the most beautiful things about life is to find a passion. This now I say this, your passion can change and mm-hmm. most definitely does change and follow that. You know, you're not like tied down to one thing your whole life. But it is so rewarding to watch people really enjoy themselves and get sucked into a passion. So sometimes I find this on Instagram, you know, sometimes social media is a good thing. Sometimes I find this in my students, you know, when I see them like really get into it. Sometimes I find it in my colleagues. Sometimes I find it through my friends. Um, But I think that that's what inspires me because it makes me want to feel that passionate too and remember what my passions are and not be afraid when they change to follow that. What about you, Michelle? Who or what um, inspires you? So the, I think the thing that inspires me the most is that light bulb moment. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be seeing it in other other people, but that is what inspires me to teach. I love seeing like when I give a piece of feedback to a dancer and their their eyes light up, they're like, oh, 
I get it now, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I love that in myself. Like, that's why I'm obsessed with like keeping on learning. When I, when I make those connections, when I find those things, those even this morning and like our workshop, I was like, oh my gosh, like I never thought of things that way. Um, it's just like, obviously the more we learn, the more we know that we don't know. But I believe that the more we open ourselves up to all sorts of information and experiences and and things like be it candle making or learning about hydration or you know designing an app like you find parallels throughout the world and i love finding those like light bulb parallel moments where you realize that we're all more connected than we think we are yeah i love that i love that What's next for Michelle and Kristen? What's next for Dance End? What, what, what have you got going on next? Well, um, so we are starting in 2023. Uh, so we started Dance End about a year and a half ago. Um, we officially launched in the summer of 2021. Um, and we have been learning and working and working with our advisory board of mental health professionals um, to create resources for individuals and to create resources for dance educators and dancers. Um, we'll be moving into in 23, uh, building entire programs for organizations. So we're starting to work with wow. entire dance schools, uh, dance companies, uh, large organizations that uh, employ dancers. Um, so we we kind of started and and we've been throughout the whole time getting feedback from all of our educators and our dancers on what do you want what do you want to learn more about like what do you what works for you what do you need um, and then we are now using that information to build from the top down and to hopefully create healthier industries. Yeah, I love that so much because I, I actually I don't know what it's like. Um, where you are in the world, but in Australia, I'm just trying to think if there's an organisation that solely focuses on that, and I can't think of anything really. I mean, people will dabble in it, sure, but to actually have an organisation that specialises in that space and actually, you know, goes out with resources and and programs and 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 that sort of thing to companies and institutions and schools. Um, that's really cool. Is there a demand for that? Like are people craving that at the moment? It's a hard question. I think I think yes. And I think there's still a far way to go. Hmm. Um, educators for sure are craving this information. So yeah. That was very clear to Michelle and I, like from the get-go. And we actually started first trying to target dancers. Um, and we found that the educators are the ones that are are really craving it more than the dancers themselves, you know, because the dancers idolize their educators. So if we can get this information into educators' hands, then they have the ability to teach all of their students. I think a lot of organizations um, pay lip service to mental health and mental wellness. And a lot of them are hoping to sort of carve out resources for it and but it's, you know, it's a shift. This is new. So not a lot of, not a lot of organizations and institutions have up until this point, you know, budgeted for this sort of thing. No, and you're so recognizing a problem that some people don't even yes. know exists. So that's right. what it's about. 
Very clever, ladies. I like it. <laughs> We're trying. All right, no worries. Well, thank you so much, guys, for your time. Now, if people want to find out more about you or any resources you want to share, I'm happy to pop some links in the show notes, but where should they go? They can go to our website, dancend.com, D-A-N-S-C-E-N-D, like transcend with a dance. Um, and then we're also on Instagram at danceandofficial. Um, we're on LinkedIn, danceend. And um, you can also just email us, danceend at gmail.com. Uh, we really strive to create specialized, customized programs for the for the organization. So if you have something like your dancers are struggling with this and you want to do a workshop on this one thing, we're here and that's what we do. So reach out. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much for your time, ladies. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic interview. And I think a lot of people will get so much out of it and and hopefully check out your resources and and just um, start being a part of that community so that they can get support for their dancers and for themselves. So I love that so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening and would like to hear more, be sure to click subscribe. If you're really feeling the love, share us with your friends. To work with me or to simply find out more about the magic of creativity, arts and business, head to my website, josephinelancuba.com and you can find me on socials. I also have a book that I've co-written with a bunch of amazing entrepreneurial women called The Women Changing the World. And you can grab a copy of that at josephinelancuba.com forward slash books. Thanks for listening.